Welcome back to episode 12 of Anime Deep Dive, the podcast that does in-depth reviews of different anime series. Due to the extent which plot points will be discussed, a spoiler warning will now be in effect. This is a spoiler review, so if you haven't seen a series and are only looking for a recommendation, there will be a timestamp in the episode description you can skip to called Final Thoughts. This section will be spoiler-free, where I give my overall opinion on a series and whether or not I think it's worth your time to watch it. So now that that's out of the way, let's deep dive into Batum, released in 2012 by Studio Madhouse. It has 12 episodes and comes both in a sub and a dub. I watched a little bit of the first episode in both, and I chose sub because in all honesty, the dub voice acting sounded fan-made. It was really bad. As for how I discovered the series, Batum was on a YouTube compilation list I saw, and it looked cool so I wanted to add it to my watch list. Batum, to this day, remains one of the most difficult anime to find on Crunchyroll. It was under a restriction where I had to go to a website, fill up my Crunchyroll information, and enable an over-18 restriction so that shows could be viewable on my account. But from what I can tell, Batum was the only show that this affected. Sometimes it shows up on my computer, and sometimes it won't. This made no sense to me because Batum does have some adult themes, but it's no more mature or graphic than 90% of everything else out there, so I didn't understand why I needed to jump through all these hoops just to watch this show. So the story follows Ryota Sakamoto, a young man ranked top 10 in the world for a video game called Batum, where players attack each other using different types of explosives. Ryota is kidnapped along with 30 other people and shipped off to a remote island where they are forced to play the game for real. Each player is given a pouch of unique bombs as well as a green crystal embedded in their hand. Participants must collect 7 additional crystals by defeating other players in whichever way they see fit, to be granted their freedom off the island. Ryota teams up with a woman going by the name of Himiko in order to increase their chances of success in this game of survival. So my first impression of this series was the movement of the characters, even in the opening gameplay footage, were just extremely smooth. I love their battle suits, how the sonar display was presented, the level design reminds me of something out of Metal Gear Solid 4. The game itself looked really fun, but I quickly realized that I would hate this game for the sole reason that I would suck at it. I can't use explosives in games to save my virtual life. I can never get the timing down. The only success I've ever had is plasma grenades in Halo, and that's only because they stick to your opponent. When it comes to the island, aside from you actually dying, I like the use of the sonar, collecting other bombs to use as your own, and the supply drops ensure that action will always continue. Everyone could go to their own separate corners of the island, but making provisions first come first serve, it creates conflict. Will you play it safe and try to survive without the extra gear, or risk your life for that advantage? The cases were stocked full of useful items, and the creativity of using them as traps knowing that everyone would rush towards them, it was a really nice element added into this world. And before we get into it, I just wanted to comment on the art style and the vibrant colors used in this series. They were absolutely gorgeous. From the forest backdrop, the ocean views, everything in this show looks incredible. So Ryota is a cliche, 22 years old, living at home with no job, laying around playing video games all day. He was my first introduction to Anit. And I love how his outfit's like all black, buttoned up, but it's probably not ideal for running around in the jungle. And that was a surprising aspect of the show. For a guy who supposedly games all day, he is in great shape. Running in sand, going up and down mountains, traversing through the jungle, not to mention all the running in the battles and getting away from other players. This guy is a beast. Ryota being sent to the island was bullshit. His mom sent him away to be murdered because he was a nuisance at home. Now, Ryota was a dick, throwing furniture, hitting his stepdad, but he's only 22 years old, and he has a goal in mind. It's not like he's 40 and has made no progression towards his dream. 
He was employed by a video game company for a while, so he has some contacts in the industry. His mother may just want the best for him, but putting his name out there for jobs he didn't apply for, that would piss anybody off. And if his mother really had a problem with him, why not just kick him out? That would force him to get a job and live on his own, and if he refused to go, call the cops on him. Say, this is my house, he's not welcome here anymore, get him out of here. You know what you don't do? Sign him up to be murdered. If Ryota gets home in the future, and he's like, oh mom, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Hell no, that beef needs to be for life. She sent you away to Death Island. No forgiveness. Then we get to Himiko, who is a beautiful high school student, who used to spend her days going to school, shopping, hanging out with friends, playing online games. And this is where all rationality leaves this show. It's like Sakamoto's friends said, there are no girls on the internet. <laughs> but all jokes aside, I enjoyed episode 2 being from Himiko's perspective and all the events that led up to her meeting Ryota at the end of episode 1. From Himiko's realization that she's partnered up with crazies after the teacher who was the most reasonable one gets his throat slit. Not that he should have been killed for it, but I agree that the food that would have gone bad should have been eaten right away. Save the rice dishes, the sandwiches, and the bottled water for later, as they wouldn't go spoiled as quickly as the chicken and the fish would. I actually like the big guy. He seemed genuine until he wasn't. I was getting Goblin Slayer flashbacks, and thankfully it didn't go that far. But watching it back, I believe he was holding onto Himiko's wrist because he was scared. She punched and tased him due to her traumatic past, not because of anything he did. I wouldn't have reacted like Big Boy, but I do get why he got angry. So let's get into Himiko's past, and why she ended up being nominated to be taken to the island. First off, Himiko is a beast. She jawed that creep from the band and booted him into the wall, and seeing her friend's fingernail scrape against the floor was rough. Now, I'm not a sicko, so maybe I don't understand the mind of one, but in what world did the band members think they were going to get away with what they did? Not only forcing themselves on the girls, but they beat the shit out of them too. And they did it in their apartment. Loads of evidence for the police. Himiko's friends blaming her was ridiculous. She couldn't have known what was going to happen. She broke out, got help immediately. What would you have her do? Stay behind, be abused as well, and then everyone remains trapped? She saved every single one of them, and then they send her off to her death. As well for the band members, once Himiko escaped, they just waited around for the police to come and get them. That's really unrealistic, but I was glad that they were caught. My biggest problem with Himiko was what was the point of lying to Ryota? about not being the Himiko that he knows. He should have earned her trust by coming to save her from being tortured, so it made no sense when she didn't reveal that she was the person that he knew. And a really cool thing that I noticed is the end of the opening always cut right before Ryota and Himiko would like hold hands, and I always thought it looked abrupt the way it ended, like they were supposed to actually join hands. So in episode 8, after they work together and survive, the full clip is shown in the opening and they do lock hands. I thought that was really cool how... It didn't show it until he had earned her full trust. Then we get to Mr. Kiyoshi. I was so conflicted with Tyra. I wasn't sure if he was just playing Ryota. Because he seemed innocent, but then when he wouldn't show what types of bombs he had, and then him collecting crystals in secret, I just wasn't sure. So when he did turn on the crew, I was so sad. Like, man, I really loved his character, but he was full of shit the entire time. But by the end of his life, I truly believed he had no intention of playing the game like he said. I think his fever caused paranoia, and he was having abandonment issues, and that's why he decided to turn. Tyra wasn't in the right state of mind when he attacked Ryota and Himiko, and I was sad that he died. I really wanted all three of them to get off the island together. As for his reason of being sent to the island, I mean, bite me. 
Salesmen's are all dirtbags like boo-hoo, your co-worker was a jerk, better send him off to be murdered. Tyra deserved to return to his family, and he was plagued with injuries for the majority of the season, but he was always down to protect Ryota and Himiko. He was a good man and I wish he would have survived. Then we get to Kira. Now, Kira, I completely understand sending that evil bastard to Kill Island. Him, his useless father, and that scum lawyer can all go. The brief moments we see with his father, it's not hard to tell why Kira is off his rocker. All the dumb shit that his father spewed out sunk right into him. It really twisted his way of thinking. I thought Kira's bombs were super cool, pretty futuristic in my opinion. I really wish we had have gotten to see more of him this season, and I hear rumblings of a Batum season 2, but who knows if that will ever happen. I would hope Kira would be like a main rival in season 2. Then we get to Mr. Nobutaka. I despise nothing more than unrealistic coincidences in any storytelling. Why wouldn't everyone dropped on the island just be people from all over the world with no connection to one another? The first person Ryota comes across and doesn't end up killing couldn't just be a random girl. It has to be his online wife who he's never met in person. Even though it'll take multiple episodes before they uncover each other's identities, Himiko partnered up with the most important person to her in the world and didn't know it. Online, he's her everything, but in real life, she doesn't trust him. And no, our biggest threat in the game couldn't just be another person who plays Batum. It's Ryota's old best friend from school. But he grew out his hair and wears shades now. I mean, like, come on, what are the chances you get trapped in a death game with your online lover and former best friend? And I don't know if we have the full story, but if Oda did really sleep with that girl that Ryota liked, he deserved the ass whooping that he got. And the last character I want to talk about is Date. And I know I'm probably mispronouncing it a little bit, but to me it sounds like Daddy. And I'm not calling this clown Daddy, so I'm going to call him Date. We're going we're gonna to use that. So Date, for as shitty as a human as he is, his inner monologue of critiquing everything that's going on around him was just hilarious. It gave a really enjoyable element to an unlikable character. And it was smart to check Date's bombs to see like what he's using and how many he's used on other people. But then it's followed up with the stupidity of telling him how many chips they have. And I think Date showed his hand way too early trying to take out both Himiko and Kinoshida during their fight. If it wasn't for Himiko's insane distrust in men, he may have been able to talk himself out of it. But Himiko just wasn't having it. Also, Ryota would have died when Date set off that bomb in the medical case. He would not have had time to get it off his shoulder and away from him fast enough. This was another unrealistic save for him, which I'm going to talk about a little bit later. And I found it funny that Date literally gets stabbed in the back by Shiki. How ironic. And then having your own trap set against you, I mean, that's a rough way to lose, and it messed him up pretty badly. So now we're going to get into the fights, and the fights in this show are just, they're fun. They have some really creative uses for all the different types of bombs. But my issue is, especially with Ryota in the first episode, he had so many crackers land right next to him, and some of them would even blow him off his feet but he was never badly hurt or injured. He holds his arm at one point, but then he raises both hands in the air to surrender later, so it couldn't have been that hard of a hit. Like I said, the fights were cool, but Ryota would have died much earlier if this was reality. He got away from some explosions way worse than what we see kill many other people. So with Ryota versus Kira, during their fight, Ryota uses his specialty, let me leave a timed explosive as you run after me and then it blows up on you. That stuff's smart. And of course we have the classic running away in the jungle only to trip on a tree root. A staple of any running for your life scene. And I loved when the two collided and it shows them as their Batum avatars. That was really cool. And Ryota actually takes some damage in this fight. 
but it makes him so confused believing that it is actually a game, letting himself move freely without the knowledge that you're playing to kill. From Ryota blocking a bomb with the empty pouch, to introducing radar cancelling, this fight was a great setup to show how battles can play out in the future. This fight was a battle of skill and tactics. We also discovered by leaving Kira alive, a person needs to die for their bombs to be used by another player. Then we get to Ryota versus Himiko. It's not all bombs on this island. Himiko has the aim of 50 cent throwing an opening pitch at a Mets game, so we get to see some close quarters combat. And Himiko has some good footwork brushing off Ryota, and then he was bobbing and weaving away from her crazy taser attacks. An old supervisor of mine once said, never bring a weapon to a fight, only your mind. Because an opponent can take your weapon, but they can never take your ability to think. And that's what happened to Himiko. She gets blasted with her own taser, and I'm sure that metal case only amplified the shock. Then we get to Ryota versus Miyamoto. Ryota fell right for the trap of going for the knife. Miyamoto just dismantles him. And it's awesome that Miyamoto is covered like head to toe in bombs. It looks really cool, but he only trusts his own physical skills, which is actually kind of his downfall. If he had used more bombs, Himiko may not have had that one on his chest to set off. Or if he had left them in the pouch, it would have been much harder for her to get to. When Miyamoto, like the way his skin is melting off of him, is gnarly. What a rough way to go. And he tries to get Himiko to the very end. And then his death is caused once again by his own miscalculation, making the lawyer set his timers to 3 seconds. He wouldn't have been blown up if they had been left on 10. But if we're being honest, I mean, I would rather be blown away by a bomb than sit there waiting to die from poison gas disintegrating your flesh. Then we get to Himiko versus Kinoshida. The second I saw Forehead Woman, I knew she was evil. With Tyra, I was like on the fence. But before she even showed her true colors, I was like, this ain't no damsel in distress, she's wicked. Himiko charging straight into her with the taser was so predictable and basic. Kinoshida just easily dodges it and then sinks in a rear naked choke like a professional. Unfortunately, Himiko's will to live, amateur judo, and the convenience of having a tree nearby to smash that big old forehead into worked against her in this one. These girls were not messing around, it was a fight to the death. I also really like the idea of the stun gun losing its power after prolonged use. What a great detail because there's no extra battery or charging station to be used on this island. So then we have Ryota versus Oda, or as I like to say, the battle for the briefcase. Fun as Explosion's Iron Batum, it's not just that. The strategy that goes into these incredible fights. And don't get me wrong, the flaming kick to the face was awesome too. But the beach setup had like Ryota had already seen the trap laid by Oda, so he wasn't going to fall for it. Too bad for the guy who used flame type explosives, he never watched Naruto. Kakashi's teaching would have informed that bum, if the bait is obvious, don't take it. Ryota was smart enough to see the second trap laid by Oda, but I don't buy him relying on depth perception to have Oda trigger the explosion while he was at a safe distance. That was a bit of a stretch for me. The only real speculation I had for this series is when everyone gets on the island, I thought they all got like the needle to the neck with like a powerful night-night sleepy bye-bye juice, which is why Ryota had no memory of ending up on the island, but then no one else seems to be suffering from amnesia. And then we actually see what happened to him, he opened his big mouth and got tased to the head for his efforts. Then while unconscious, he's thrown out of a plane with like a time parachute, and I mean skydiving is on most people's bucket list. I personally would have been pissed not being able to experience that, especially when the odds are that you're going to die on this island sooner rather than later, you missed a huge opportunity to jump out of a plane. 
During my first viewing of Batum, I remember thinking even though they were smart in picking up the bombs of fallen people, they used way more explosives than what they would have had. Especially the crackers and timers. I can't assume that when they get a bomb pouch from someone that it would be completely full. When they're in the compound fighting with Date, there's like three explosions set off pretty close to one another, and I was for sure that they wouldn't have had that many bombs. So on my brush up watch through this series, I decided to see if I could keep track of Ryota and Himiko's explosive count, to see if the show just threw realism to the wind, or if everything added up. And it was really fun doing this on my second watch, it made it just more enjoyable. It was entertaining trying to keep track of all the explosives as they changed hands. Everything was spot on except it seemed Ryota had one cracker too many, but it being this close, I could have easily lost track of something. So now I'm going to get into my nitpicks. You find yourself on an island you have no idea if it's inhabited or if you will need to be rescued. You happen to have one lunchbox and one bottle of juice. The first thing Ryota does is start guzzling back the tea and he's getting more dripping off his face onto his shirt than he is in his mouth. Why wouldn't you conserve your resources? Attempt finding fruit on a tree first instead of eating the food you have. So Ryota is in a survival situation. You find a fanny pack in your bag that you do not recognize and you wait the entire day to open it and see what's inside? That stuff could have been useful supplies and you didn't even bother checking it right away. The fact that he survives this long, it's astonishing. Himiko being the man-hater that she is, with everything she's been through in her life and on the island, how did she not see Ryota sleeping on the bank 25 yards away from her? Forget the radar, would she have not have just looked around before stripping down to bathe? He wasn't even hidden, he was just there in the open. When it comes to signing people up for the live-action version of Batum, if the public knew about it from the news, the police I'd imagine were investigating the disappearances, I just think they could have thought of a better way to have people thrown into the game than a note circulating around town. So my next problem was why don't survivors of the game go to the police and expose the game developers? And why would the game developers not kill the winners after taking them from the island to ensure their silence? Like they just let Date go back after his win to normal life. Granted he's such a tool bag someone else shipped him right back for round 2 of Batum, but I don't see how they would feel safe just letting him go back to normal life and not thinking that he would report what happened to the authorities. Unless all the people we see watching the game are really connected in the police, then he'd be screwed either way. And this one's kind of stupid, but hey, that's why it's called nitpicks. The group that first approaches Himiko to join them, they wasted a bomb catching fish. That annoyed the hell out of me. You only get eight. Why would you use it for that? The amount of times Ryota doesn't die. Being kicked off the fort and saved by a tree branch, first, real original. Second, this guy has a horseshoe up his ass the amount of times he should have died and hasn't. Miyamoto cut Tyra's hand apart, but he doesn't kill him or take his crystal. That made no sense for them just to leave him there alive with the crystal in his hand. Someone who wished they would have had the luck of Tyra, Murasaki, how did she survive the brutal severing of her arm? Sure, she's a nurse, and even if there were pain meds in the fort, I don't buy her fixing her own wound one-handed and not passing out due to shock. And my last little nitpick is I knew the last homing bomb was for Himiko, but Ryota had to bet his life on it. Luckily he was right. Tyra should have sent the entire fleet at once, mixing in some for Ryota and some for Himiko, because they can't protect each other from them all at once. It made me really sad that Tyra takes a deadly selfie to end it all. As for quote of the series, goes to Ryota with, what matters is care for others. I just really like that. As for the end of the series, I was happy Ryota didn't crack her. See what I did there? Cracker. Himiko. 
He didn't crack her. Uh, whatever. You guys are haters. I love them wanting to get off the island, then be official. Unfortunately for me, brushing up for this review, I thought Himiko had graduated or had dropped out of school, making her like 18 or 19. But I saw her character bio and she's 15. So this entire love story is ruined for me now. But she's still best girl. Really had no competition. For reasons I just mentioned, hell no she ain't waifu and hell no she ain't going in the harem. Alright, now we get to final thoughts. I really picked Batum apart. Not because it was bad, but because it was really fun. This was a great series. And even though some dumb decisions that I didn't agree with drove the story at some points, the great strategic battles with all the different types of combat, the uniqueness of all the bombs, psychological elements mixed in with the different characters, Batum is just awesome. I suggest you check it out if you haven't already, and I hear whispers of a long-awaited season 2. I really hope we get it. Alright, that's going to be it for this week. Hope to catch you in the next one. Bye.